When it comes to happiness, there are two ways of looking at how we get there. The first view is that the way to happiness is to have no problems, to eliminate all suffering, to have no resistance. The second way to find happiness and joy in life is to have good problems. So first I want to get into a piece by Rod Dreher. And he's going to start with a thought experiment which he found through the philosopher Robert Nozick. Suppose that you were given an experience machine that would give you any experience you desired. And some super-duper neuropsychologists could stimulate your brain so that you would think and feel that you were writing a great novel or making a friend or reading an interesting book. All the time, you would be floating in a tank with electrodes attached to your brain. Should you plug into this machine for life, programming your life's experiences? If you are worried about missing out on desirable experiences, we can suppose that business enterprises have researched thoroughly the lives of many others. You could pick and choose from a large library of such experiences, selecting your life's experiences for, say, the next two years. After two years have passed, you will have ten minutes or ten hours or so out of the tank to select the next experience of your next two years. Of course, while in the tank, you won't know you're in the tank. You'll think it's all actually happening. Others can also plug in to have the experience they want, so there's no need to stay unplugged to serve them. Would you plug in? What else can matter to us, other than how our lives feel from the inside? Nor should you refrain because of the few moments of distress between the moments you've decided and the moment you're plugged in. What's a few moments of distress compared to a lifetime of bliss, if that's what you choose? And why feel any distress at all if your decision is the best one? Would you plug in? He then goes into a long response he got from a reader uh, of a guy who was essentially very high-functioning but addicted to video games. He had a wife, he had a career, you know, he had a successful life, but he was distant from every aspect of it because every free moment was lost in, in a world of, you know, of video games. And he talked about um, the good and bad of that, uh, that in many ways you you know, he did see himself improving at the game, and he sort of could see a visual representation of improvement that real life lacks. And he also went on to talk about some real life friends that he's made that way. So it's not just, uh, you know, it's not just a condemnation of that. But he talked about how it uh, it drained the other aspects of his life of the meaning that they should and do have, because he really just didn't have time for them. He also wrapped up saying, I became an Orthodox Christian around the same time that video games began to lose their grip on me. I think the two things are probably related, but I'm not quite sure which came first. Probably the real mover in all this was the Holy Spirit. Certainly, Orthodoxy's focus on spiritual growth, discipline, and practice offers me a satisfying real alternative to the mostly illusory achievements which were offered by games. Why should I care more about reality than a virtual reality of games? Well, the obvious answer that you and I can agree on as Christians is that reality is reality. And we are made for union with God, not to sit as blobs in chairs, pleasuring ourselves.
But there's another reason I think any honest person who plays a lot of games or who spends a lot of time in the experience machine will have to admit, the more you do it, the deeper it gets into you, the more boring and job-like it gets. Gamers have a term for when playing a game feels like a chore or a job. We call it grinding. There's a point in every game, no matter how deep and complex, where it ceases to surprise and delight and it becomes boring and familiar. You reach the other side of it and it is no longer a trackless forest, just a shabby little wood, so to speak. So you move on to another game, or you try to invent challenges for yourself to keep the game interesting, but it never works for long. At the bottom, the experience machine is shallow and empty, and the harder you throw yourself into it, the harder that bottom hits you. I'm a geriatric millennial, he said, almost 40 years old, so I'm an old fart and I don't really have my thumb on the pulse of what people in their teens and 20s are into now. But I've witnessed games grow from the crude, simple Nintendo games of the 80s to the massive, complex, always-on, always-expanding online games which are available today. I can't imagine the temptations I faced growing up are anything but more intense now. Anyways, this is, uh, he goes on to talk a bit more. And, uh, and I myself, you know, and this is not a condemnation of, of things like this. These are, uh, these are, you know, enjoyable things in their, in their right place. But the problem I have with the relationship between young men, particularly, and video games, is that young men believe that their time is meaningless. Young men do not believe that their time, as unglamorous and uncoordinated or as just pointless as they feel, they do not believe, and they do not believe most likely, if they're listening to this as I talk now, that their life actually means something. And the suffering that comes with that is something that bothers me. Why has our culture created a situation where it's hard to believe that your life might mean something? As non-glamorous and non-famous and pathetic as you may feel, that your time is not something to throw away. This is another really interesting response he got from the article from a grad student. He said, My experience is that the thought experiment doesn't really work with students anymore because students think that being in the machine is just fine. From talking to professors who have been teaching students more than 30 years, they say that there's been a steady decline over the years in students who respond to it the way that you and I do. However, here is a similar thought experiment. I forgot where I read it, though it might also be from Nozick. But here it goes. Imagine two lives, life A and life B. For simplicity's sake, let's call the subject Rod. In life A, Rod is a successful columnist for the American conservative. His readers really appreciate his work, his wife loves him, his children respect him, and his employers really value what he does. He feels that he has a pretty good life. In life B, everything seems the same to Rod. But his readers think he's a clown, though they respond just the way they do in Life A. His wife stopped loving him years ago and has been cheating on him, though she perfectly hides her infidelity. 
His children have nothing but contempt for him, though they are outwardly respectful towards him. His employers keep him on, but they mock him behind his back. Both Rod B and Rod A feel exactly the same. So the question is, is one life, A or B, better than the other? Which life would you rather have, given the choice? If they both feel the same, which would you rather really have? I heard in a podcast recently with Michael, I think his name is Michael Eisenberg. He's a finance guy. He said that under COVID, we've basically tried out universal basic income. So a lot of politicians these days, sort of uh, you know, dystopian left-wing politicians, push the idea that the way to solve you know humanity's problems is to just give everyone uh you know a thousand dollars a month i've heard that number quoted but the idea is just give everyone money every month to take care of their basic needs and human happiness will you know will just flourish from there this is because idiots who believe this uh, believe that humans are a blank slate that they have no essential nature and so should you take away their financial needs, um, that basically all of their problems will go away. Uh, you know, people, this, these are the same people that tie all of inner city violence or just violence in general to some kind of economic problem. Now, it is very true that those things are related, but they aren't the only factors. There are other factors, uh, moral factors, which you know, a person in these shoes would pretend uh, is not there. The opposite view is that so that is the view that the way to find happiness is to have no problems but as this guy pointed out covid did not show a flourishing of creativity you know these people did not just jump into being wildly creative and wildly filled with optimism as we took away the necessity for people to work as people just were handed out money from the government, that we did not see a flourishing of the human spirit, but we saw the exact opposite. We saw a drastic increase in depression and suicide and aimlessness. That we are made for some adversity. We are made for challenge. That we do not thrive when all challenge has been removed, when all obstacles have been removed. We thrive when we have worthwhile obstacles to face and worthwhile reasons to overcome them. That happiness is not found from no problems. Happiness is found from having good problems. Jordan Peterson said somewhere that it is nearly impossible to separate someone's problems from the meaning of their life. So what are the things that we would have to cut out? What are these parasites that allow any incremental increase in our personal life to seem pointless? So for example, let's say you were to step away from being amused, from amusing yourself to death, and you were to try something real, to try to do something real. The reason we don't all do that is because we are ashamed of how small our ability really is. It's, you know, been mind-blowing to me that as I try to start something new, 
I am amazed at how little I can actually change at one time. That the amount that I can increase without an, being overtaken by anxiety is way smaller than it is in my head. And so when I see it in real life, when I see just how little I can actually do uh, without being overtaken by anxiety, it is kind of humiliating. But so what? Overcoming that tiny thing, doing that tiny thing, doing this podcast, this podcast will probably not change my life. It probably will not make me rich or famous or anything like that. It will just be a very small piece of the puzzle. And it is beautiful and it is worthwhile. And every single one of you are worthwhile. And the tiny thing that you might do today is worthwhile. Your time is not something to throw away. I read a book by John Eldridge called Get Your Life Back, and he talked about how our escalating taste is part of why we don't feel any joy in life. So he talked about how he was in a rabbit hole of YouTube, basically, and that through the YouTube rabbit hole, he saw part of what is chipping away at our ability to enjoy our own life. So at first he was watching like a video, an outdoor video, uh, you know, of, of like something to do with like hiking or something like that. So everything I'm about to say is paraphrased because I don't, I don't remember perfectly. But basically he was watching some outdoors, you know, type videos. And then the, you know, spectacle just kept increasing. So then it was uh, surfing videos. And then he started watching a video about a guy who made a dirt bike that could go on the ocean. So he uh, started watching these videos of a guy who was surfing a wave on a dirt bike and he talked about that as that is where our taste is, that that is the level of stimulation that we need to be interested for more than five minutes. And that because that is our appetite, every single beautiful thing that passes by you today in your real life just seems unbelievably pointless. That our appetite for stimulation, is directly tied to our numbness. So what is the opposite of that mentality? How do we get out of the trap of trying to amuse ourselves away from the emptiness of our life? How do we get out of trying to avoid how pointless we feel our life to be? Most people do not think their life and their time is worth anything. And video games are fun, and movies are fun, and all of that stuff is fun, and I'm not here to say that it's all bad and, 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 and go down that road. I am simply here to say that your life is, your time is worth something. It is quite literally worth something to an employer, and should you stay at that employer for a lengthy amount of time, the amount in money, in dollars, that your time is worth will and should increase. So how do you judge how low is your ceiling for the rest of your life? If you want just a cold, just a clean way to look at, how far could you go without lying, without fantasy? How high is the ceiling of your life? 
there's a really simple way to know how high the ceiling of your life is. And the good news is that this ceiling is not fixed. But it's very easy to figure out. How long can you put off gratification? If you can put off gratification for years, then you can get that degree you want, you can get that job you want, you can move up in that job in the way you want, you can have your own business, you can do anything. If you can put off gratification for a long time, then the world is your oyster. But the shorter the window between when you do something and when you need the pleasure of it being gratified, the lower the ceiling of your life is. If you must be gratified immediately, then you cannot be married. You cannot get that job. You cannot keep that job. You cannot own that business. It's all gone. But these things are not fixed. Your stamina can increase. And the things that shorten our window, the things that make us feel like we need more gratification sooner, we might need to kill those things if we want the ceiling to raise. You might think that, what what's the point of all of it? Something that I feel we're really caught up in at the moment is we're just... I feel like our world is so, like, fatalistic right now. I heard something the other day that Biden is starting to monitor bank accounts and do some weird stuff with that. Like, it is just so unstable out there. And that just brings so much, like, anxiety. And so it might seem, oh, it's pointless to go try to, you know work really hard to be someone that someone would want to marry. It's pointless to go try to get that job or to start the business or whatever. Like, this whole world is going down, and it's just there's no point. And you can live that way if you want, but there is another way. The other way of seeing life is that we strive for excellence no matter what is happening out there because it's what we are made for. Ants don't just build ant hills when the president they like is in office. Ants build anthills because it is who they are. It is what they are made to do. And we should push back against our anxiety, against our fatalism, against our emptiness. We should sow deeply into our time. We should take our time seriously and act like it is worth reading books. It's worth doing all kind of hard things. It's worth working out. It's worth doing whatever those really difficult things in front of us are. Those things that make us sure, that convince us that we can actually do really difficult things, that we can put off gratification, that we are not just here to consume pleasure, that we actually are strong. And that pushing back on those things pushing towards the job you want, the career you want, the marriage you want, that that is who we are, that as we live and die on the right hills, that that is our honor, that our honor and our duty is to die having given our best, that whether or not the ship we're standing on goes down, that we will go down swinging because it is who we are that to go down swinging is our honor. Happiness is not found in having no problems. 
happiness is found in having good problems. One way to fight against fatalism, to deepen our understanding and our enjoyment of life, is through exploring the wisdom of people that came before us. For me, this looks like reading books. Now, why would you read a book? Why care? Why does something that does not give you money, what does it give you? The reason to dive into these very deep uh, sources of history of the people that came before us is that it makes your resolution higher. So have you ever seen a really blurry photo and then seen that same photo in a really high-definition way? This is what happens the more that we learn about life, about you know, about all these deep sources of wisdom through, let's say, everything from philosophy to scripture to our religious tradition, you know, to the beauty of these things. These things increase the resolution that you see your daily life. They take what you now see as bland and empty and dead, and they fill it with color and detail. That learning for its own sake increases your resolution. It changes your eyes. This is a quote from Zena Hitt's book, Lost in Thought. If I only work for the sake of money, and spend money on basic necessities, and organize my life around working, then my life is basically a pointless spiral of working for the sake of work. It's like buying ice cream, selling the ice cream for cash, and then using the cash on ice cream. It is no less tragic than working for money and getting crushed by a falling anvil on the way to cash the check. Activities are not worthwhile unless they culminate in something satisfying. For that reason, Aristotle argued that there must be something beyond work. The use of leisure, true leisure, not disassociation but true leisure, for the sake of which we work, and without which our work is in vain. Leisure is not merely recreation, which we might undertake for the sake of work, to relax or rest before beginning work again. But leisure is an inward space. For Aristotle, contemplation, the activity of seeing and understanding and savoring the beautiful world as it is, is the ultimately satisfying use of leisure. The premise of her book is basically that in modern America that we basically have either tried to focus on types of learning that give us money or if it doesn't give us money, then we just don't care. Then we, then we disappear into TikTok or whatever. That we only learn things that have a dollar sign at the end and we don't have any gratitude for learning something that doesn't end in cash. That are there things worth learning which don't end in cash, and why are they worth learning? So I think that this is a really key detail as we try to understand why we are unhappy as very uh, rich by historic standards modern people. I want to leave you with a few ideas, and we're going to wrap up. The first one is, how can you kill the embarrassment over the very small thing you could do today to sow deeper into your life. We live in such a uh, 
we're so inundated with the you know success of other people that we feel that the thing that we could do is cringe and awkward and shameful. The small, tiny thing we could do today uh, to, to make things better for our own life is somehow insignificant. What makes your improvements feel insignificant? And how do you shoot those things in the head? Because this is your real life. And disappearing into some fake version of life to escape this one is going the wrong way around. How do you escape the fake version of life to really dive into this one? Why do we feel cringe and shame and embarrassment around the small, tiny thing we could do today that makes things better? The second thing is don't straddle the fence. Don't try to live two different worldviews. Don't be the party guy and the guy who has kids. And I'm not saying this from a moral standpoint. I'm saying this from a standpoint of enjoyment, of happiness. This gives you the worst of both worlds. If you try to straddle the fence, you will get all the responsibility of both ways of seeing life and none of the enjoyment. If you don't really sew in too deeply into your marriage and and into these other deep uh, responsibilities, if you kind of do the bare minimum in those areas and you try to kind of have the other life too, you just get all the bad parts and none of the good parts. I'm not making a moral case for not doing that, although that's obvious and you don't need me to say it. I am simply saying you'll get the parts that suck without the good parts. So don't straddle the fence. Sell out to a few hills and die on those hills. And then the last thing is this. What I'm about to say you have heard a hundred times before. If you can, try to hear this in a new way. You have heard this many times before. So I listened to a podcast the other day, which was an interview with the guitarist of Maroon 5. And the interviewer was asking him about playing the Super Bowl halftime show. Because playing the halftime show is like literally the biggest thing you can you can do as a, as a musician, as a band. And so he talked about, you know, just the experience of doing that. He said it was really cool. But honestly, the day after that, I went through this sort of depression and this feeling of, is this it? And he reiterated something you've all heard a hundred times before. And that is no matter how high the peak is that you might accomplish, no matter how big the event is, that it ultimately is the journey it ultimately is the growing that is where the enjoyment of life is found. And that sounds so ethereal. It sounds so sort of, I don't know. It sounds just like one of those things that's put on a, a e-card and shared around Facebook or whatever. It sounds like one of those fake quotes that we all say but don't believe. But genuinely, after playing the biggest stage that is available to a band... The next day was a day of depression. And that through that, he genuinely saw it hammered home. That it is the journey of our life. But if we hate growing, if we feel self-loathing towards the ways that we could chip away at something, if we associate small amounts of growth with embarrassment, cringe, and shame 
then our life will consist of those things. And I am very guilty of this. But if we could change our mindset so that our small, tiny growth is associated with joy and wonder and appreciation, then life will be happy. Or to put it another way, happiness is non-anxious expansion. How can you expand very subtly without anxiety? How can we have non-anxious expansion? I don't mean expansion by doing more things, but by seeing more in each thing, by deepening the hills that we do die on. Happiness is non-anxious expansion. I love you guys. I hope you have a great day.